Let's get it. Let's go away. Let's get one. Every time I hear this song, hey. I just want to start rapping. Hey, hey, hey. And I remind hey. myself that's, that's hey. probably not the hey. best hey. idea. Get it, get it, get it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's Sunday. Chicago. Rise and shine. And Let's you get it, are so blessed to have another session of the Black and Brown Get Down right here on WCPT in the shy. You know what? Like, Eladio does these things. Really, he be trying to, like, show how uh. how down he is. Um, but it's really like a Chicago check. And I'm going to tell you something. A lot of people be repping Chicago that ain't really from the shy. Mm. And they ain't, like, Are trying you to Rockford, front you. Schaumburg, <laughs> Naperville, Oakland. Get your be really trying to front y'all off like that, like that, like this, like this. But... <laughs> There are some things that are so uniquely Chicago that if you don't know, you want now. <laughs> See, you don't even know what that for everyone that's Chicago, they know what that call is. Mm. For those that that are not, they don't know what that is. That means five O's coming. That means five O. Look, now they twelve. <laughs> Right? Yeah, that's, that's like 12, the benefit 12, of like, one of the things I loved about working with young people is like working with young people keep you relevant. Yes. Right? Yes. Because they they keep you on game. Like yes. they keep your language tight. And as a reading teacher, right, reading and writing teacher, you know, I used to always have these colleagues and be like, oh my God, they need to speak correctly. Although I, I kills the English language. Like I'm, I'm a beast with it, right? Mm. And so as a result, my students were, were very articulate because mm. I just love words. But I also believe that all language is, is, is relevant and acceptable in its mm. own linguistic community. That yeah. being said, every discipline, every community, every ethnic group has its own way that it communicates with each other. Mm. And I think, those ways need to be respected. Right? So what would be some Chicago words? Obviously, we got to keep it, you know, we got to keep it uh, Keep it clean. Appropriate. Keep it a yeah, buck. PG-13. Keep but, it a uh, buck. How many different ways can you say a hundred oh, in, Ch- in, in, in Chicago speak? A hundred, a, a bill. A C-note. A C-note, a buck. <laughs> yeah. One hundred, of course. Yeah. But all of look at all of those synonyms for <laughs> for just a hundred. For just a hundred. So you literally got people talking like, yeah, dog, can you drop a C no? You know, can you get a bug? You know, man, keep it a buck with me. Keep it up. I just love it. And language so, morphs, so language. right? So that's the other thing. Like language transitions and evolves. So, you know, I remember when I was coming up, money meant bread, right? Yeah. And then we got away from that. But now we back to it somehow. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it always comes up. It's just it recycles. It recycles. It's like right? fashion. It just recycles. <laughs> it's ever in trend. Like, what is a mug? You know, in Chicago, you hear that a lot. Oh, that mug over there. That mug over there. Yeah. Me, the dude, a guy, a person. Right? My shorty. Shorty. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I'm Yo, just saying. Chicago. I love, oh, I'm going to tell you something else I loved oh, about it. And only people ahead. that grew up in the projects can like really relate to this. And All if right. you grew up in the projects, it's like a whole nother subsect of culture in <laughs> Chicago. Thank you for that. Like, and so I remember in Cabrini, like the buildings had names. Mm. <laughs> like I thought that was dope. Like, yeah, man, I'm from the rock. Oh, okay, I'm so from HQ. It wasn't I'm like the name, of the official name of the right. building. It was just the name given to, to the, the building. building. Like, so it, if you it, grew it, up it, in it, that it, community, it. like, no, nah, you know, oh boy, you know, dude from the rock. You know, he live in the rock. 
Yeah. He live in HQ. Yeah. You know, I love that. <laughs> That's amazing. Because you know we do that with neighborhoods too, right? Like the official map will call Pilsen the Lower West Side, right? Mm. But people call it Pilsen. Older folks call it Dieciocho. Like they, there's oh, all Dieciocho. Dieciocho. I love all that. different types of names for you know 26th Street, La 26, La Villita, like so different different neighborhoods have their own names for their own their, their own, own communities hood. too. You right. We used to call like so where I grew up, like I, when, when my mom brought me home from the hospital, she brought me to the Berlin. Yep. So I grew up in uh, 1230 Berlin, whites. Um, but we we moved out of there probably before I was even like six or something. Right. But we always stayed in the neighborhood. So I never really left the near north side. But as I got older, I realized that there was this dividing line. And I actually used to have my students do um, writing assignments based on invisible lines that kind of like separate us. Mm. And so on the near north side, that line was like Well Street or really like LaSalle. And so they would call west of LaSalle the Soul Coast and then east of LaSalle was the Gold Coast. Oh. Like when I was coming up because it was so black. And of course, you know, we know through gentrification that it's changed. However, like and and even before like the projects, it was all like like little shanty houses and all this kind of things. Like so just even mm. in a Chicago history to see how neighborhoods have changed. Right. Um, it's just a fascinating study as well. But anyway, know that I'm so shy. Yeah. And I love that we're getting you know, we're talking about Chicago things because today, this month, first of all, we're cele- celebrating Black History Month and we know that Which of course is know, every month. Is every month. But this month we blackity black. Right. And we're celebrating Chicago today at the same time. And before we get into that, though, let's let's take our time to thank our sponsors. As always, CTU Foundation, uh, CCTU 1600, ACII, SEIU, uh, Chicago Federation of Labor, um, friends of Brandon Johnson. Friends of Brandon Johnson. Bronda, Brandon Johnson. <laughs> we appreciate y'all. Um, and thank you for having us on the radio, allowing us to... Talk our talk. Um, but I want to get into it. Um, and today, specifically, and you were already talking about it a little bit, Tara, but one of the legends, legendary Chicago activists, um, someone who has had such a tremendous impact on the city, and quite frankly, at the same time, not enough people know of her, right? Your very own mother, Marion Stamps. Um, and to be quite honest, I want to thank you because I wasn't hip to the impact that your mom had before I met you, right? And it was because of you that I started learning about that. And maybe that's that's a lot of things, right? That's because schools, uh, they don't always allow for us to, to talk about real history, right? Um, so we do that as teachers. That's one reason. And the second is South Side, West Side divide, right? I grew up more in the South Side. So you learn about South Side figures, but don't necessarily always hear about West Side figures and vice versa. Um, but once you put me on game and I started learning more and more my myself about your mom, like that story needs to be told. Yep. I agree. And to that point, like shout out to my nephew, Jahari, and the hippies and my cousin, Omega, Amariani Stewart, because we are trying to put a documentary together Mm. uh, of my mother and her whole crew. Like my mother had a sorority before I understood what sorority was, but they was called Sisters of the Struggle. Like that's how dope she was. And their colors was red and white. So, yeah, my mother probably would have been a Delta. She was like... 
putting Bring that, that in me before I even knew it was a thing. So, yeah. yeah that was but, subliminal. Um, it was subliminal because uh, Sisters of the Struggles Colors was red and white. And when they was on something, they highlighted in gold. And when my mom died, it was so beautiful because um, all of her girls um, wore red and white. And then my sister, Justice, shout out to J-Baby, shout out to Just Ice, um, my Sarah sister, Blood and Bond, who made stoles for all of them. So mm-hmm. my, my mom was buried in this very regal um, African Garb, gold, wow. and then we all, my sisters and I, all had on this white and gold, and then all of the SOS had on this red and white with gold. It was really a lot of pageantry uh, when my mother um, passed away. Actually, my mother, like people, um, old heads who are still around, uh, when I introduce myself sometimes in different circles, will say, do you know Marion Stamps? Are you related to And mm. I say, that's my mom. And just uh, maybe about two weeks ago, I was doing a walking trip through Austin with some students from North Grand. And we went into this little spot and that happened. And the man, his name is Clarence, literally start crying on wow. spot. Wow. Um, just talking about how much he loved my mother and, and what a how powerful she was. And recently... Mm. Um, in the CTU, in the cut, um, they did a profile on me and, and I talk about my mom and I talk about the legacy that she allowed me to walk into, that wow. there are doors that still open for me. There are places that I can still go. And when I say I'm Marion's daughter, I get all the deference and respect in the world. So, yes, mama, we going to get the documentary made like for real, for real. Yeah. And she's been gone a while. So, and, and we've lost so many people. So we lost my mom, but we also lost so many other people who was connected to her story, who had something to say mm. about it. And so just, let me just say this, whatever you're doing in your life, um, big or small, your life is worth documenting. Mm. Your story is worth telling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, make sure you are authoring, you know, you are collecting your memoirs. You know, if you're in certain fights, many of the fights, even at CTU are going to be historic. They're going to be the things that, people mm-hmm. study in curriculum and Eladio and I are living through that but students are going to be reading about that one day so make sure that you are documenting your role right. um, so that you don't get left out right so that you get amplified and when it, whenever I do day to day that's the one message that I mm-hmm. kind of leave on which is never forget like always make sure that you are lifting up your ancestors and the people who came before you the people who made a way for you but my mom came up from Jackson Mississippi her mentor was like in real space Medgar Evers um and uh, her, the person she loved the most, admired the most was um, Fannie Lou Hamer, right? So mm-hmm. she didn't, she, I think she like met Fannie Lou, right. uh, but she worked with as a young activist. And we got a bunch of young activists coming up now, which is why I'm always preaching who got next. Because my mom was 13, 14, working with Megar Evers, trying wow. to desegregate the public libraries in Chicago wow. and had been on that fight, had been on that front line. And um, according to my aunt Regina, who passed away, the way my mom ended up in Chicago is because the night that they killed Megger, my grandmother put my mom on a bus the next day. Wow. Because she was like, they're going to kill you. Um, because my mother was always spitfire. She was never like the quiet, I'm just going to hold aside. Like she was always front line, speaking truth to power, even as a young person. And so that's why I say in our spaces, like, 
leaders are not necessarily made. They're cultivated. They got something mm-hmm. in them already. Mm-hmm. Right. And it needs to be developed. It needs to be cultivated. But they come with it. Right. I love that. And so. Um, so can go I'm, ahead. I'm so, I, because I know you you're going to go off. Cause this is your mom. Mm-hmm. So if you if you would allow me, I'd like to I'd like to like interview you. Oh my! On on your mom, based off of a couple of things that I've I've researched. So oh cool! I saw this amazing interview that your mom did, and she was talking about the Black Panthers. Okay, and she was talking about her work with Black Panthers and how much she loved Fred Hampton, and she even said there are very few black men that I love in my life, but Fred Hampton was one of them. Um. And she also talked about bringing her kids over to the ban- to the Panther Party. Can you talk about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, can you talk about that experience, you know, and, and what was it like as a child? And also, you know, what was it like uh, being in the same spaces as the Black Panther Party and seeing your mom work with them? For sure. Um, know this, um, I am... 100% village raised. Mm. Um, and that means that the community raised me. My mother was a single mom and had five daughters. I have four sisters. And she was young. My mom passed away at 51 and we were all adults. Wow. Um, but about the Black Panther Party, my mother, because of her activism, got introduced to the chairman, the late chairman Fred. Shout out to to Chairman Fred, free them all. Um, his son got introduced to him, and he charged her with running and operating the breakfast program in Cabrini on the near north side. What? So wow. she was responsible for that. So my late Aunt Regina and them were up, and they would tell you Fred didn't play. He was a young brother, but he didn't play. He was so intense because he wanted the babies to have hot everything hot grits hot eggs hot bacon hot like it wasn't no like give them some cereal and send them off to school so they had to be up at 6 a.m preparing breakfast for all the babies that was going to come through uh, and have breakfast so we know now that the black panther party's breakfast program is how public schools started feeding breakfast right so so many of the ideas that became a part of what public school culture is were born out of the Black Panther mm. Party movement. And so what it meant for me is that I was always at a rally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you didn't like and when my mom passed away yeah. I wrote this little piece and I said, Other children have lullabies, I have freedom songs. Like that was the yeah. soundtrack mm. of my life. That's right. Cool. And and one always comes to mind, but it's so not appropriate. So I wanted to get us banned, so I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> But my mother was always black power, black power coming. Like that was the soundtrack of my life. And it wasn't just um, relegated to Chicago. We would be in Cairo. We would be in southern Illinois. We would be in Detroit. Um, One of the last and coolest things I did uh, before my mom transitioned was my it was the it was the Million Man March. Well, I'm going to get to that. So the Black Panther Party and and Helen Schiller, shout out to Helen Schiller, the late alderman. She has a book out now called Daring Struggle, Daring to Win. Um, But again, a great griot and and, um, documented. She documented that phase. So when my mom passed away and as we're getting ready to do this documentary, she sent us so many pictures of my mother just like in meetings with Daly. Right. Wow. At. At the um, in Springfield, shutting it down. My mother was notorious for shutting down city hall meetings, council meetings. Like she lived for that. She yeah. would like snap out. And 
as much as people would love to see me like, yeah, you know, Mary was so loud. My mother was brilliant, though. My mother was brilliant like Stacey Davis Gates is brilliant. And that kind of level of passion and unapologetic standing in your truthness is terrifying to people. Because my mother just never backed down. Um, my mother's love for black people, period. My love for porn oppressed people, period. And my love, my mother's love for black men. And yes, my mother loved Fred. That was her brother. My mother loved um, Edwin Marksman. That was her 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 comrade wow. and her man. Um, and we later named the center after him after the police let him bleed out. He was the first tenured professor at the um, not at the social work school at UIC. Um, and she loved, there was three she named. It was her daddy. Yeah. Her daddy. Um, and so those were the men she loved. And she loved Tranquility Phillips, who was also one of her best friends. And one of the things I was telling uh, one of the one of our brothers yesterday was like, there used to be a vanguard, right? Mm. It didn't just used to be activists and people who knew how to speak the language and be in front of the camera and handle the microphone. You also had a vanguard who was about that life, like when it was time to stop talking. <laughs> they just had to piss. They just moved furniture. <laughs> and so my mom, and, and that's why I have such a healthy respect for street organizations, because my mother poured into them. She understood those brothers. She loved them. And as a result, she made me love them and made me respect them. And my mother loved black manhood when mm -hmm. it showed up in all of its righteousness. But she will definitely oh call you out when it did not. Yo, right after this break, we're going to keep getting into it. Um, the late and great Marion Stamps. We have her very own daughter here telling firsthand accounts. Let's do it. Get into it. Yo, 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 yo. Like, obviously, y'all know Tara. We, we, she's a host on the show, right? But um, today we're getting into a very, very, very special person, her own mom, Marion Stamps, and the impact that she's had not only on the west side of Chicago, but the entire city. Yeah, and yeah, also moving real. out into the nation, right? So, like, you you were talking about this earlier, Tara, and and this really hit because I only have one grandparent left. I have my grandmother um, from both sides of my family, and I just think it's so important to document the stories Ooh, of our ancestors. You, got, you know what I'm saying? You to get got them on to document, audio, yes. video, to to just be able to pass those on to our, you know, to the next generation is so important. And you know, we walk around today with, you know, we could record on our phone at the drop of a hat, right? right. We go live in a minute. And we document and so, all kinds of things. And we document all kinds of foolishness. So it's only right that we take some time out when you got elders in your family to interview them. Just let them tell their story. And guess what? They want to tell it. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. They want to tell their story. They, right. Everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to be heard. And everybody wants to be loved. And one of the ways that you love and see people is by telling, letting, allowing them an audience with you. Yeah. So that they can tell your story. And trust me, whenever that happens, um, the blessing is really all yours. Yeah. Right? Because they just going to drop 
gems. We, you know, gems, and they're going to sow seeds that no book, no school, no other situation could really do for you. Mm. So, you know what I'm saying? We read about things that we got people living around us right now who live through that. Right. Right. We talk about the civil rights movement, but we got people who lived through that. Right. So many unsung heroes just living among us, right? Trying to make a way. Don't nobody know their story. They don't nobody know. And so I think it's, that's another thing I used to always have my kids do, like interview people in your family, like interview um, and just let them share their story. Even like children, we, of course, I always think elders, but as I am now, I'm a mother of adult children and the mother and the grandmother. The perspective of the, the child. The perspective changes, too. So here, so speaking of that and speaking of interviewing folks, um, let's keep going with this interview um, of you on your mom. So you were talking about how um, she got involved with the Black Panther Party, how Fred Hampton, the chairman himself, had tasked her with running the breakfast program in Cabrini-Green. Um, as a child... Give us your perspective of what it was like to be in these spaces with the Black Panther Party at such a young age. And like, how old were you? You know, what was that like? Like, walk us through some of that. I was anywhere between like five and ten, five and twelve, like, because... But I'm going to tell you what it was like, the feeling that I had. Yes, and I shared yeah. this feeling with Anton Miglietta not long ago because his family was a part of the intercommunal um, organization, which is when Fred Hampton started moving to uh, bring in other poor and oppressed people from other ethnic groups. So you had okay. the, um, young lords, the young lords, you had the young patriots, you yeah. had people from uptown, you had all different kind of nationalities uh, that Fred was unifying them under the same oppressor. Right. And like and so what it was like for me as a child was in a lot of spaces that we go in now. And the way that a lot of us grew up with be seen and not heard. Growing up among the party and people like my mother was the exact opposite (laughs) of Mm -hmm. that. They wanted you to be seen and they wanted you to be heard. Because they themselves were so young and they are so so their babies were young. So we were actually in a lot of ways all growing up together. Hmm. And so I remember I would be walking up and everybody had a community center like ours were. It started off being the Chicago housing tennis organization because my mother, which is a powerful story. My mother had the Chicago Housing Tennis Organization, Chicago Welfare Rights Organization. So she was always organizing women primarily to to have voice and agency in their life mm-hmm. around the issues of housing and, and, and public accommodations. And so they had an office, but the Uptown also had an office. And I always remember we would go in the office and it was up these stairs, lots and lots of stairs. But it was the freest place I'd ever been. I've never felt that level of freedom in my life Mm. because not only was I protected as a child, I was valued. I was I, I had value and they had the Keep Strong magazine, which was if you ever get your hands on it, it's an amazing historical archive. And they had all these activities that were going on. And it was never like you can't do that because you're a kid. It was never that. Wow. It was always about bringing you in because you are a young person and we need to be preparing you for for next. Wow. So it was the freest I've ever felt. Wow. That is so powerful. Um 
man, you said you said some things that were we were growing up together. The freest I've ever felt. There were no limits just because you were a kid. Like this is, I imagine, or at least as a teacher, this is how I want my students to yeah. feel. Yeah. Right. Like this is this is how we want our kids and Chicago Public Schools to feel. Like, and the fact that the party was was developing and growing and creating that space for y'all was amazing. Oh yeah, it, they enabled me. I mean, I've been knocking doors since Jesus lost his sandals. I mean, I've been knocking doors. I've been knocking doors. Second door nature to you. And and, and we used to can too. You know, like homeless people do it now. You'd be on the street asking for money, but uh-huh. they used to send us out on the weekend, and we'd be canning. And we had to go out and raise money. We had to sell Keep Strong magazines. We had to sell the Black Panther newspaper. We had to sell like we had to go out and fish. So you you were entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you know how the word of God say don't you know you become a fisher of men. Yeah. And as a young person, they. They groomed us to fish. They groomed us to have, you know, now we call them organizing conversations, but they just used to, we were, we were raised in a way and we were raised with a language and we were raised with a confidence that like, you got to speak into the lives of people. You got to connect the dots. You got, you got to make it personal. And that's where sometimes I think we miss the mark and we keep the conversation up here when it needs to really be down here. And you need to make me understand why. I need to vote for this person, post to this person. How is this minimum wage going to impact my life? How is the if? And so I think we we at the heart level at the heart level at the mind. You, you got yeah. to make it make sense. And mm-hmm. and I say this all the time: politics is personal. That's right. Because every political, uh, every personal right, freedom we think we have, it was a political decision behind it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to connect the dots between the personal and the political so people be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Then, because you got to make it about me. We're uh, essentially all narcissistic people, right? And so mm-hmm. we want to know how, how, how I'm going to eat. How is it going to connect to me? How is it going to connect to me yeah. and mine, right? And, and, and that's how I've always done it. But I did it that way because I was I was taught to do it that way. When when my, when my mom would speak, rooms would light up. My mother would leave a mic, and what, I promise you, whatever she was asking them to do, it was done. It was done. And and um, before we done, like you asked about that and growing up. So that's how it was. It was also very isolating too, though. Mm. So I was free. Or I felt free around those spaces. But when I had to go or when my sisters and I had to go to school (laughs) or to something else, it was isolating because my mother dressed us in African garb. Right. Well, we you know, we we had the braids and we had a thing because we were poor as hell. We was poor, poor. So we had our little African garbs and we they they penalized the brother for not saying the pledge. We never said the pledge. We never said the pledge at school. So I've been making the Wakanda mark across my chest since I could go to school. Seriously. Yeah. So we would stand up. They stand up to say the pledge. We were taught to cross our arms like this. They say the pledge. And then we had our own black pledge that we were raised oh, yeah. on. Yeah. Right. And so even to this day, I, I don't. And it's, it's because that was the way that I was raised so, so much. I look at that, I'll be like, remember when mama used to have us doing that? And so it's very isolating, and it's also a very small community, and that's why I say I was village raised, because it's only a handful of people that are my contemporaries now that were raised like that. 
right? Mm. That was raised by activists or revolutionaries that don't say the words like comrade, mm. <laughs> right? Like they don't, um, that read the kind of books that we had to read. That had to be, I, my mother ran a program that was an offshoot of the Black Panther Party school program that was called the People's Community School. And at the People's Community School, I learned all the black pledges, all the black history, all the blackity, black, black, black stuff uh, one can just download into a young person. But it was because of that, that when I walked in other places and other spaces, I never felt I, I didn't feel lesser than or more less than I think I would have. I think this this planet, this country and white supremacy is always trying to keep you to keep the boot on your neck. Right. So, you know, you don't get out of it. However, um, my mother and her village and my mother and our village downloaded so much stuff in me that is really hard, um, if not impossible to make me think otherwise. So here's, here's the next question. Because you started talking about it. Um, you started talking about politics and the impact oh, yeah. of, of politics on civil rights movement and vice versa. Um, we talked about your, your mom's work with the Black Panther Party. Talk a little bit about how instrumental her work was on getting the late great mayor, Harold Washington, elected. You've told me some of these stories before, but um, tell you know, Tell us some of those stories. Like, what what do you remember about some of those rooms you were in? Um, this is what I remember. A lot of people remember Harold, of course, but behind every Harold is a army of nameless people making him possible. Mm. And in that army was Conrad Rural, the late Conrad Rural, and Conrad Rural and I would have a conversation about Mama, and he said we were going to meet him. And what a lot of people don't know is Harold wasn't going to run. Mm-hmm. And Harold said to the to his kitchen cabinet, y'all got to raise $50,000. No, y'all got to raise $100,000 and y'all got to have 50,000 new registered voters. Okay. That was his demand in order for him to run. Well, one of the things that made that what we would think is astronomical number of new registered voters possible is my mother with the SOS, with Dorothy Tillman, with the late great Nancy Jefferson, a cadre of women soldiers. They were like a modern day Dora Milaje mm-hmm. organized black single women primarily in the projects as registered voters. Yeah. So that was the beginning of how black women became this like voting, this powerful voting block. Right. So at that time, you had Cabrini, Abla, all the projects up and down State Street. So you had these huge numbers of concentrated people, women, voting age. And other women, sister to sister, was talking to them about why Harold, why they need Harold. And so they turned out thousands, hundreds of thousands of women to vote for Harold Washington. And so in the wake of that, Dorothy Tillman became an alderman. Helen Schiller became an alderman. My mother is actually the only one that didn't become an alderman. She ran against um, Walter Burnett. My mother is the last real challenger Walter Burnett has had. Wow. Right. And and Walter was a kid, but Walter was put up by the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. you know, backed by the Democratic Party, as we know, and they knew that my mother was way too formidable and the plans that they had for the near north side at that time, which were already laid, right? And my mother already told us, they're going to tear these buildings down. 
these buildings are going to go down. Our job is to see how many of y'all we can have on the land when they build back up. And so she sued CHA for one-for-one one replacement housing. And so the women who signed on to that lawsuit in the first iteration of those buildings coming back up were the only ones to be housed. Wow. She sued them. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so that that <clears throat> my mother was huge on building political power and 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 that's how she did it. And and invariably um, so, it was through building uh, black women because we were the ones holding down households. So to, I remember you telling me this story and I thought it was so good. Um, tell us about that conversation where, you know, once the 100,000 was raised and the 50,000 were registered, <laughs> and then... The, and, and then Harold tried to back out. Right. Go into that a little bit. So once that was done, Harold tried to back out, and they was all in the closed room, and, and Conrad Rule told... <laughs> Mama told Harold, you better get some blank or some blank, but this is running, because we did not do all of this for you to chump out. Woo. So, like, she... She... She play no games, and anybody that's still around, these old heads that's still around, um, that that had the, the honor and the privilege of working alongside my mother, of organizing alongside my mother, of fighting and struggling alongside my mother, will tell you that she was consistent. Um, in that, you know how like we get activist people we love and then somewhere along the line they either buy out or sell out or they mm. get different on us and you like what happened to you and so I'm so glad like that didn't happen um, to my mom yeah. right uh, that she was true that's such a such a powerful and great story right like uh, of being able to talk about the people behind such a iconic figure like Harold and how they themselves were also iconic and really the force to his um, legend right so thank you Tara we're going to get right back into it after these messages um, still have more to talk about the late great Marion Stamps um, and then how it connects to Chicago today all power to the people stories that like there should be classes on this stuff and well, let me, let me stop you right there because you know i'll forget but um anti-miglietta and, and and some grassroots organization actually did write a whole chicago's curriculum yeah that that's what needs to be they wrote you know, a whole curriculum that yeah and when you have true champions in the fifth floor this is the kind of um movement you can make but you know i digress let's get back into it um, so we talked about your mother's work with the Black Panther Party. We talked about your mother's work um, and her impact on Harold Washington's uh, tenure and victory. Talk a little bit about just the overall work that your mother did, Cabrini Green, right? Because from what I'm hearing, Cabrini Green USA, like <laughs> you say, Marion stands like ground zero, you know, and folks are like, "Yep." Talk about talk a little bit about that. And like what? You know, like anybody else, um, the work that my mom did, I, I already said, um, permeated throughout the city. But her stomping ground 
was mm-hmm. Cabrini and the near north side and that community. And so I remember as a young person when Jane Byrne as a publicity stunt against violence decided she was going to move into Cabrini. Mm. And my mom and the sisters, of course, yeah, and, like? and some of the brothers would stake out the bill. <laughs> they would be, they'd be on stakeouts on the building. And so they peeped how, hey, she had kind of basically came in and did a whole lot of renovations and so took two apartments and made them one like giant unit. But then she also would like creep out at night, you know, and, you know, went through the back cave and went back to her spot on uh, on the Gold Coast. Because she actually stayed on Chestnut. And so mom and the people like broke that right story. And then she was like, we don't need you over here. We don't need you, you know, playing our people and tricking our people. You know, my mother was offended by the Mm -hmm. trickery that we see. Um, I call it turkey politics, right? When they come around and bring you a goose or a turkey. You know, this now they're doing gift cards and they, they got slick with it. But my mother was offended about the trickery that they used um, against basically our people, but, uh, or they give you gift cards or gas cards, or, you know, they might be giving you eggs, but <laughs> you, you might, if you ain't careful, you're going to be on 95th, hey, somebody's going to be giving you a dozen of eggs. Hey, like, okay, I'm just saying, gonna, I'm just saying, watch your setups. <laughs> Watch. And so my mom was so offended uh, by that, and she would always speak out against it. And she would be saying, you know, if you if you can Google, like, there are clips and stuff of my mama around, and she'll say, we don't need this. You know, and she would try very hard uh, not to swear, but she cursed like a sailor with a fifth. I'm not even going to kid you. Um, and, and you know, I, I know there's one clip, and they said, they called my mama a gangster. <laughs> Which she low-key kind of was. But anyway, she said, I ain't no gangster. I don't know nothing about gangster. Ask Vidoliak about gangster. That's oh. who the gangster. Like, mama, one of the things I loved about my mama, and I'm like this now to this day. I know I came from Marion's. I name names. So if you ain't, if you dirty, if you, if you, I'm not that person like, I got something to tell you, but don't, then don't tell me. Because I don't get caught up like that. I name names. I say who did it, what happened, and it ain't even no, no snitch stuff. It's like we go, I'm real in my life, 100% period. So... I'm not the person to come to if you sneak this in or you got, I'm not her. Because when they go down, I'm going to say this is, I know this because of this. So don't do it. Um, and my mom was like that. And so my mom would be at these rallies and and she would call the roll, baby. She would like drop knowledge on who did what. Uh, I know it was a big mess with at the height of what was going on in CHA. And see, this is the other thing that a lot of people don't realize but. We're right now in a housing crisis in this city, right? And we're feeling it in the 2000s, in the Mm mid-2000s. But the setup happened in the Mm mid-90s for what we're now feeling. Mm -hmm. And my mom would say to the people, y'all, the Chicago 21 plan, which was authored by Daly's father, Daddy Daly. Yeah called for the end of all public housing by the 21st century. So by the time Daly got into office, he was basically living out his father's plan, which is the Chicago 21 plan, which was the Chicago 21 plan. 
And I remember being a child, literally, and and stomping, you know, at the mayor's office, stomping on maps and papers that had Chicago 21 plan on it. And so the housing crisis that we now find ourselves in is a direct result of the plan to eliminate the city of poor people primarily. And if you happen to be black and Latinx or how am I saying Latinx? Yeah, that's cool. Hey, if you happen to be that, then that's just what you happen to be, right? Yeah. But it was basically about eradicating the city of poor people and making it a city for the wealthy. And if you have been paying attention, then you see that that's what's happening. When you say, look at all of this housing that CHA is still sitting on. Look at all this money Mm -hmm. CHA is still sitting on. And one of the early fights my mother had was with the Chicago Housing Tenants Association. And it was about fighting for tenant rights. My mother was successful, actually, in getting one of the project buildings to be a co-op. 1230 Burling, before it was over, before it was closed, the tenants owned it. Wow. It became a co-op building, that one building. Um, She was so she was uh, there was a lady out of, I think, St. Louis, Dorothy Gilkey. I think Gilkey was her name. And Gilkey was also trying to like do this work. And my mother was loud and like, no, sis, you need to fall back. Go back to St. Louis with that. But it was about organizing tenants and public housing. And so what's happening right now, the the people got to wake up and understand that the city is causing, the city is 100% responsible for the housing crises that we are now experiencing on the west side of Chicago, uh, west and south sides of Chicago, the mm-hmm. unaffordability. And we got to be careful also about the whole question of like affordable housing and how they throw that word around. Because it's affordable to whom? It's affordable for whom? It's like when it says, you know, um, it's data driven. Well, who driving the data? Because you can make data say whatever you need it to say. Mm -hmm. Right. So you got to start asking critical questions like that when people throw language out at you like that. Like, don't because saying public housing is very different than saying affordable Affordable housing. housing. Right. So very different conversation. And so uh, the projects as we knew them was public housing. And just as a like a matter of record. Right. Um, Just so we clear public housing wasn't even built for black people. Mm-hmm. Public housing was built for immigrants that was coming over here and people that was returning from the military, right, to have uh, a f- public housing. And then when we when when the 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 Great Migration converged mm-hmm. with some other things, and so as more Black folks start coming from the rural South to industrial cities, Chicago, Detroit, blah blah, you know, they started seeking shelter in these places. Then that. That that organization that that shift it was a shift in the communities, but what the immigrants were able to get that a lot of black people were not was the FHA loans and small loans so that they can go buy them houses and that's how they started developing suburbs, right? So they was able to they had these like little mm-hmm. you know subdivisions and wherever they got them right, and so they was building out the suburbs, but they were building out the suburbs from the people mostly white, who wanted to leave the city because now black families were coming in and the city was being populated by black people. So then it was white flight. So now what we're experiencing is the opposite of that, the inverse. They Mm -hmm. want to come back to the city, but they've made it unaffordable for the families that live here presently. So what was not, what they were not able to do with drugs, what they weren't able to do with inciting gang violence throughout this city and there's blood on the hands of the people in this city they are now doing with the economic base which is just really pricing you out of the city so I love that you're connecting it to present day 
right? And in this conversation of what is it that we truly need to feel secure, to feel safe, right? To, to feel like we can live and talking about housing and, and housing as one of the components of uh, Treatment Not Trauma campaign, right? Saying that actually what we don't need is to continue to invest and increase the money that we put towards policing, and, but rather oh. to invest in housing and mental health clinics, in schools and parks, well, there are, libraries. There are a hierarchy of needs, right? We know that. And so before you can get to the the head, you got to treat the heart. People got to know they're safe. Right. People got to know they're going to eat. People got to know they got a job. People, So it's a basic hierarchy of needs you have to attend to before you can actually start moving an agenda where... where you at this upper level thinker, these higher order questions. I got to be full. Yeah. I got to be safe. And police have never made people safe. Not our people, not mm-hmm. your people. Mm-hmm. Never made them safe. That wasn't even the purpose, the, of, the purpose right. of them. Police officers started off by being slave catchers and, and, and they've always been the enemy of black people. Like that's just the, how it is. Now, we trying to figure and out how to live. Regardless of the race of police. <laughs> regardless right? of the race of police. Recently, as we've seen because recently. What, yes. Unfortunately, so many of our officers, black officers, Latinx officers, once they take that oath or get sworn in to their gang, because Chicago is really, as much as Chicago is a city of neighborhoods, it's a city of gangs <laughs> and gang affiliation. And FOP is the biggest one. So once they get sworn into that, it they it's a lens, it's a film that come over their eyes where they they start to take on that same dehumanizing dogma um, that uh, that the police department often embodies, and it and it and it oftentimes, unfortunately, they bleed blue. So really, what we're saying with treatment not trauma is we have to invest in people. Period. If we want to feel safe, we have to invest, invest in, in what people. people truly need to feel that. Right. And that's what the Black Panther Party was about. That's what a lot of organizations, even now, that's just trying to hold on. I mean, like, we got to ask questions, people, and I'm going to put it back on the people. You got to make them make make them explain to you how we spend this kind of money on the police department, but we don't spend it on the park district. Mm. How do we spend this kind of money on the police department, but we don't put it on our schools? Right. Now, y'all done said everything is supposed to benefit schools, and y'all still saying schools are broke. The lottery was supposed to help schools, right? TIFF mm-hmm. was supposed to help schools. None of it is helping schools because you all are. And this is the thing about Chicago, because we're going to stop this story. What y'all say? Chicago public schools are just not schools. They don't work. But then you have a governor send his kid to Walter Payton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Walter Payton still a public school last I checked. Mm-hmm. Lane Tech was still a public school. Whitney Young was still a public mm-hmm. school. Um, Lincoln Elementary still a public school. So you have schools that work. It's about where we want to invest our dollars and and how do we resegregate a school system for the haves and the have-nots. And they've okay. done that through selective enrollment. So right. you have the smallest percentage of people that actually attend public school, uh, which is white, which is about 10%. But they take up almost 80 percent of selective enrollment schools. So we this city has done that. Right. And rather than fight against this whole idea of a selective enrollment and magnet schools, we're just happy when our kid get on a little list. Well, baby, your baby shouldn't have to be on the lottery to get a public, a quality public school education. You got to believe that you deserve better than what you're getting. Mm-hmm. And I think. I know for a fact, like, that's all my mother ever wanted. My mother wanted 
us to see, like, I want the same thing for my child that you want for yours. I love that. I want the same thing for my community that you want for yours. It ain't magic. Right. Ain't nobody asking you, like, when you don't have a gym teacher, you don't have a a teacher library, you make sure you get one in that building. That's right. We want the same things in all of our communities. We are fighting, still fighting. My mother fought, and the fight continues for a city that we all deserve. That's right. And uh, I'd like to thank you, first of all, Tara, for, for opening up and sharing about the amazing story, some of the amazing stories that you have with your mom. Um, and as we get into wrapping all of this up, I, I just want to ask one, one last question because I would be remiss if I didn't ask what what's the impact been on for you? What's it, what's your mom? We, we've heard about your mom's impact on the city and on Cabrini Green and on the west side and south side. What has your mom's impact been like for you and not only for you, for your sisters, right? For for your siblings. Like, what has that I, been like? I think we've all, each of my sisters have carried out my mom's legacy in a completely different way. Uh, I think I represent probably the most of it because I'm still very active um, in issues that impact this city, but my sister Guan ran the Marion Stamps Youth Center for like 10 years after my mom died. My sister Justice ran the Marion Stamps Youth Center, had a marching band, a cotillion, was getting wow. people jobs, get a STEM program, and did incredible work and still has the Marion Stamps Youth Center. My sister Tracy is raising her family in Champaign, and my sister, my eldest sister, probably is the most, but she funds everything, so we're on trip. Um, <laughs> she teaches in Dubai, and so whenever I'm like, yeah, this is what I'm doing, she just drop a check, and we love her for that. Um, but what I didn't say was that my, you know, in terms of safety, we make our people safe. And one of the ways my mom did that was that she called the only gang truce and successful gang truce this city has ever had because we got to take control of our safety in our community. That's right. Thank you so much, Sara. I hope Chicago, I hope you got a little bit and learned a little bit about a late and great activist and her impact on our city. Um, but if anything, talk to your people, hear their stories. Right, because it's our job to carry them on. Thank Aluta, you so much, Tara. Continue up. The struggle continues. Goodbye.